What's up, folks? Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast, where we sit down with top athletes, researchers, scientists, and more to learn what the best in the world are doing to perform at their peak and what you can do to unlock your own best performance. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, and we are on a mission to unlock human performance. All right, the Tour de France is underway, so it's fitting that this week we sit down with world-class cyclist Lachlan Morton. Lachlan's accomplishments on the bike are truly legendary. I don't say that lightly. He's raced in some of the biggest world tour events, but he's perhaps best known for some of his achievements in ultra-long distance and uphill events. He recently set the world record in Everesting, climbing the equivalent of Mount Everest, so that's 29,000 feet, in just seven and a half hours. He also rode the Tour de France route last summer by himself, riding 12 hours a day, sleeping in tents alongside the road, and raising $700,000 for charity in the process. Lachlan sits down with Whoop resident cycling expert Jeremy Powers, who's a star himself, by the way, to discuss Lachlan's journey to cycling and what he's learned throughout his career, his inspiration for doing, in his words, stupid long rides, the toll the Tour de France route took on his body, and what his Whoop data looked like, why perspective and gratitude are key components of success, and his commitment to charitable rides and how he's raised millions of dollars by taking on cycling adventures around the world. Also worth noting, we have new ways to interact with the Whoop podcast. You can email us, podcast at whoop.com, or you can call our new listener line, that's right, and leave a question or comment, 508-443-4952. That's 508-443-4952. We also have an exciting new offer for Whoop podcast listeners. If you're a new member signing up for Whoop, use the code WILL, that's W-I-L-L, when you're checking out and you get $60 off Whoop accessories to go with your Whoop membership. So that includes bands, battery packs, and of course, our Whoop body apparel. We also this week have the all-new Rainbow Band, which is pretty cool. So head to join.whoop.com to get started. Without further ado, here are Jeremy Powers and Lachlan Morton. All right, so today we have the pleasure of speaking with Australian pro cyclist Lachlan Morton of the EF Education Easy Post team. Lachlan is a pro cyclist on paper, but he's actually a lot more than that. He's racked up some impressive racing victories over there, but he's also raised millions of dollars for different charities. He holds all kinds of what we call FKTs, which are fastest known times. Literally, Lachlan could have his own book of world records from the wild accomplishments that he's taken on and completed over the years. His cycling adventures, and not just that, the style that he's taken them on in have inspired a generation of cyclists. And through that, he's become a household name within the sport from, of course, the racing, the charity, and the endurance adventures that he's taken on. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me, mate. I wanted to start off by talking about how you got into riding and your brother, Gus, and some of the early beginnings, um, because we we had read this, you know, a lot about you, about, you know, this wild, uh, intense athlete getting up at four in the morning to train before school, about kind of being inspired by your brother. I just wanted to hear that from you a little bit about what that what that was like growing up, what your parents and your mindset and, and how you grew up. Um, yeah, I started riding like very young. I was, I think, eight. I grew up on like a small farm just inland from Port Macquarie. And so we had like bikes and motorbikes around and um, just like generally spent a lot of time out, outdoors. But 
we wanted to get into go-kart racing because um, we loved like motorsports. My dad was really into motorsports. But we also had some friends who we were super competitive with um, who were starting go-karting at the same time and they didn't want us to race against each other because they knew we'd kill each other. So dad agreed to get us some new like mountain bikes in the interim like we were going to space out a year and i wasn't like super interested um but gas got really into it and then i was like you know at that point gas is two years older than me so anything he did was like the coolest thing so i just copied what he was doing and we joined like the the local cycling club which for the size of the town we lived in was actually like really, really big. Like I think we had like up to 200 members in like a, a town of at the time, probably 40,000 people. In Australia, that was like pre good 11s and, and like kind of the cycling boom there. So it wasn't normal to have like a club like that. And so we could turn up and race, you know, a crit on a Tuesday and then like a handicap on Saturday with yeah 200 other local bike riders and that was just kind of it we didn't really think about about cars after that and initially it was like just something you did like i would just go and there was no training involved you know you'd show up and race and like on saturday morning play play soccer in the morning and then go race in the afternoon and then when when i was 10 10 or 11 we went on like a family holiday to europe and we saw two stages of the tour de france and then that was it for me like i decided then i was like this is what i want to do and that's when i started training and like you know basically singular focus from then for like the next 10 years of my life to get to the world tour that was like i lived and breathed it and you know raced everything I could and, and trained whenever I could to like achieve that goal. There was something where it was said that you would get up at 4.30 in the morning and before school, you'd go and train. And yeah, I just want to shout out that that seems like impossible for anyone to commit to. Even like the most ambitious like teenagers to do something like that is the mornings are generally pretty hard. Oh man, I was, I was crazy. I, like I had to... Like I'd always train from five until eight every morning. Um, so I had to get up at four thirty and that would give me like just enough time to get to school. And then I'd usually like, instead of getting a lift home from school with mum, mum would come with my bike and then I'd just ride from school and back home and get in like another hour or two. And yeah, that's basically what I did like week in, week out from when I was maybe. 13 all the way until I was you know finished high school so I yeah I used to love it like it was a very uh different relationship with bikes that I have now I was very like competitive and driven by trying to win races but there was also something I, I liked even back then of like getting to school at you know quarter to nine and I felt like I'd already had a day you know, and I would train mostly by myself and just kind of have these awesome, like, 
you know, experiences in the morning, riding in the dark and then like seeing the sunrise every morning and like really like feeling like I achieved something before everyone else even got up. I mean, I was very like internally driven. My parents were always like trying to slow me down. Um, but I just like, that was crazy. No, I, I know. I think that that's, I think that's what's, uh, you know, really cool, really special is that you are an outlier in this way and, and it's kind of gone on because you in like I think somewhere around 2010 you would have gone to the Garmin like development team which was the big Devo team at the time for up and coming riders and you had signed a deal that like let you go from that team to their pro tour team because they believed in you so much that that had to have felt kind of amazing uh, to be able to have kind of achieved that 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 was your vision since you saw that tour stage you achieved the goal yeah. But to be honest, that's where it got like, that's when it started to get complicated because as you said, like I signed this deal with the the development team that would lead me into the pro team. So I think I was like probably 18 at that time, 18 or 19. And then it was kind of like, all right, like now what? A little bit. <laughs> um, and then you kind of start to mature a bit and realize like there's other things you need to pay attention to in your life um, to make you happy. And that's when like I started to find it more difficult to just have like a, a singular focus. Yeah. That, that was probably the, the hardest period I had with cycling maybe from when like the, the first two years in the world tour, I think were pretty tough for me for sure. Yeah. And it, and it sounds like that. It sounds like kind of you decided that it was, even though you maybe had like a golden ticket to your dream of going to the tour with a big team, you know, the young contract, the the guy with like, yeah, huge, huge ambition and big determination, huge engine and the ability, but it was kind of like you trained so hard to get to the goal and then you realize it and it's time to, it's time to take a, another, another look at things. Cause you get there and you see what you maybe you didn't know. You're like, ah, so, so then you make this, you make this big decision to step down and you and you go to a smaller second tier there's the upper echelon of pro cycling which is the world tour then you kind of step down to a team called jelly belly which was uh like almost a re a rebirth or a re a reimagination of of what you had thought pro cycling was yeah i was pretty jaded after two years of uh world tour racing if i'm honest and i knew i wasn't really ready to step out of cycling because I was like 21, 22 or something and had never really done anything else. So my in my head, I was like, I'll go race on Jelly Belly with my brother for a year and use that year to like transition out of cycling into into the real world. But it backfired because I, I joined, just started really loving it again because the team was really small and we were just, you know, eight or 10 riders um, kind of like living on the road together and like it felt like being a junior again and it was just you know everyone was in it just for the passion which was was super cool and, and kind of yeah like rebooted my motivation but also like helped me reassess like the position that you have as like a, a professional athlete which is a very like it's a very privileged job to have you know and I, I kind of started to to realize that and then over the course of those two years I really um the, all the I managed to like switch around my motivations a lot and and kind of 
I had this drive to come back on my own terms and I was like I want to go back to the world tour just to just to get there and like have get, get there with a new renewed perspective and just experience it again because I felt like if I didn't I would always have this regret you know but uh, yeah the those two years at Jelly Belly I think as far as like road cycling goes that's the most two like most enjoyable two years of racing I ever had because as I said like my brother was on the team we were all just like a really good group of friends you know Danny and Maddie Rice they're like family and we we managed to like achieve a lot which was was a really cool and rewarding experience yeah, that was, I think it was super cool because I also raced for Jelly Belly. Uh, so I, I know, I know Maddie Rice and Danny yeah, yeah. very well. And I, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I know that they have like a real family environment. It's almost, um, you stay, you know, in a lot of hotels and a lot of kind of, I'd say it's, it's, it's more by the book with the pro tour racing or the bigger races, but at Jelly Belly, you might stay at someone's house. You might go, mm-hmm. you, you literally might just kind of all 10 of the riders might be in like a, just a log cabin somewhere like on bunk beds or on mattresses on the ground. It's so much more rugged and real and it changes. You show up to the line and you're this big professional rider, but you also just kind of, you roughed it to get to that point because everyone's trying to climb the ladder and it's a, it's just a different budget. It's a different style. It's a completely different environment to be racing within. Yeah, exactly. And like, as you said, it kind of makes you hungry because you're like, what am I doing here? You know, like, because he's like, okay, I'm in my twenties now. Like I'm sleeping on the floor, some <laughs> random house. Like if I'm not here to race, like just go home, you know what I mean? And so you're like, all right, let's race, let's race. And then you have this like shared bond with a group of people and yeah, you get out there on the road and we really clicked as a group and yeah, we, we managed to, to win some good races together, which then makes those wins like extra special, you know, because it almost doesn't feel like your win. It's just like, as a group, you're like, oh man, we did it, <laughs> you know? I'll always look back at those, like, super fond memories. You know, I, I had other wins at other teams, like, before and after that, um, but never, like, they'll never even come close to the, the wins I had there, um, just as far as, like, a they were really fulfilling. You got to check the boxes. You got to race with your brother. <laughs> you guys were the underdogs yeah. going up against teams that had quite possibly 20 times the budget that you did. And <laughs> you, you, you got to do, you know, you got to do it on your terms, right? Yeah, exactly. It was a very special time for sure. During your time at Jelly Belly, you won the tour of Utah and you've also won, you know, tour of the Gila and you've had some like top tens and some pretty, pretty big road races that kind of just stamp the, the, the talent part. Like we already know this, uh, but talk to us about that because, you know, in the world tour, you were young, you're coming up, but then you win the tour of Utah against some pretty, pretty talented guys. Some guys that showed up wanting to win that race at this time is the, probably the biggest, you know, if not one of the biggest, arguably stage races in North American soil. And um, you do it on this this underdog team with a group of riders that probably very few people know. You've said it's the most meaningful win that you've had. Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, we were having like a really good season that year and we we built up to Utah and it was like, you know, our Tour de France for that season. So everyone was super motivated. And I think we all, like without saying it, we all had the belief that we could win. And then... I still remember in that race, like all the guys rode so well and like we controlled the race 
like basically start to finish in a way that like all the other teams were coming up like, why are you guys chasing everything? Why are you riding so hard? Blah, blah, blah. And we were just like, shut up. We're just doing our thing. Um, and yeah, I think like, because I, I took the lead back on the last stage and you you go up over uh, Empire Pass and descend down to Park City. So it's one of those, and the descent's like, it's really fast, but very straightforward, you know? So I think I had a couple of minutes at the top. So I knew I was going to win. So I had like 15 or 20 minutes of downhill to like soak it in. And I I was very um, present in the moment to be like, you know, this is probably going to be the best win you ever have. Because um, like my parents were at the finish, like the whole experience with Jelly Belly, with with Danny and Maddie and, and like Gus pulling up the last climb for me. Like there were just so many factors that I was like, I was very aware. I was like, this won't happen again. So I really was able to enjoy that, which it's not often you get that. Well, I, I realize now you, you basically never get that. You get that once maybe. Um, so uh, that was, yeah, a very, very special win. And like, it was a lot of work to like make it happen for sure. But I don't know, at that point, like it didn't, n- none of that felt like work because I was really, enjoying myself it's a good way to segue because it's like there's this part of lachlan morton that's like a total stone cold killer like determined 13 year old on his bike in the morning leaves the world tour to rough it to like be the underdog to win to like get like check some boxes with his with his brother and these things and then and then there's also this like there's this other this other version of you that's this charity alternative tour kind of super chill off the beaten path version of yourself that you also have more recently been able to develop and you've raised and done some like really incredible things this year you've raised uh i think three hundred thousand usd for the crisis that's happening in ukraine the war with a ride called one ride away last year you did the alt tour um which was a a version of the tour de france that you did completely self-supported where you raised seven hundred and fifty thousand usd for world bicycle relief talk about that as a general thing the charity component in the alternative stuff yeah, I think, um, you know, I kind of segued out of the pure like road racing uh, over a couple of years. We started doing like an alternative calendar and trying to race different events like off-road that, you know, one, I'd always wanted to do, but two, just to like kind of see what they're about. And I had this like unique opportunity to do it with EF. And uh, I don't know, just being uh, a bit more outside the the race bubble, you kind of start to realize that like being a professional athlete, it's like a very selfish pursuit and, you know, the amount of resources we have as like a, a big cycling team, they're all kind of funneled into just trying to get us to go faster. And I think, you know, with just a slight rethink, it's like we could have a much bigger impact on, you know, the cycling community and then ultimately like the, the global community. That was kind of the, the motivation, um, I think, to, to start branching out and seeing what we could do, you know, as a cycling team or just as a bike rider to, yeah, try and better, better the world like a little bit, right? And, like it's not like we're out there doing huge things that, that a lot of other people are doing, but it's like, all right, let's just try and do, do something because, you know, we have a platform and we do have like – the cycling community is amazing, you know, like the global cycling community as a whole is, is very generous and we all kind of relate to each other on, you know, over, you know, riding bikes. Um, so 
I think like I've been able to, uh, I guess, engage that community through doing stupid long rides, basically. And that's kind of, yeah, the outcome has been we've been able to raise money. Um, but yeah, my role in that is, is pretty small. If I'm honest, like the alternative to her is just like, it's like a dream july isn't it <laughs> go away and ride your bike like on the whole month no one bothering you you get to camp out and, like just ride around france like um that's the, that's stuff i like to do anyway this is the humble the humble lachlan Morton on this side then because because i don't think it's easy i think that's the thing that is like surprising is that like so so few pros that i know have that balance lock like where in the last 12 months, you've raised a million, like over a million dollars, and you've helped like a lot of people. You rode around France. Yes, it was a dream, but you did it in sandals. You had like terrible tendonitis. You like cried, slept like three hours. You wanted to stop. Like this is the alternative tour, and like all these things are. The, I think the thing that is that is crazy is that like you can say you're more than a bike racer, and you've you've like taken what you're good at and been able to impact the world through doing that. I think that's like a a very special accolade that not many people hold yeah and, but i mean i love those like uncomfortable situations you know like in a in a way i'm not like out there sacrificing a lot in a way like i, I feel like i'm kind of doing the things that i like to do and, and kind of meant to do for me it's been just about like perspective and kind of being aware of like how how lucky the position you have is and then trying to rethink the way that like you can kind of maximize the position you're in and use your ability to like, I mean, I kind of had a realization at some point I was like, you know, I could go all in on trying to win road races. Right. And maybe come top 20 at tour Swiss, like once a year or something. And like at the end of the day, it's like, what does that do? Right? Like that's just me trying to stoke my own ego to prove that like I can be up there, but I could take like the same amount of energy and, and point it in different ways and have like a, a much like broader impact. And yeah, I think like it just comes down to like, you got to let go of your ego a little bit and just like let go of that part of you that needs to prove that you're as good as everyone all the time. And yeah, then I think like a lot of different opportunities and doors and, and different rides you can do kind of open up. So yeah, I guess that's been like the transition and it's like something I enjoy a lot more also. I've met so many amazing people in the last like two or three years, like still through through riding, but people from very different backgrounds and walks of life that yeah, I just wouldn't wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, and I've been to places and, and, you know, had highs and lows on the bikes that, you know, I couldn't have dreamt of four years ago. So it's been a, a really nice journey and it's something I, I, I enjoy it a lot. So hopefully I can keep doing it for many more years. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned you like being in these uncomfortable situations, but the, the saying goes right that like luck favors the prepared. So I'm sure you've learned some things over like over the years from these trips. And can you talk about some of the things that stand out from you from like the do's and the don'ts of these adventures that you've been taking on? It's a fine line. I always say between being like overprepared to where you kind of like extinguish any chance of something going wrong, because then it's not an adventure, right? But then 
you know, if you're underprepared, it can be reckless and miserable also. Um, so I've definitely learned a huge amount. Like I think the first uh, ultra I did was uh, a bikepacking race in the UK called GB Jura. And that was like a week long boot camp basically of me trying to work out how, how to ride a bike long distances, like self-supported. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is like very basic stuff, like how to, to fuel yourself, like how to make sure you have enough food, what kinds of food. Um, and then like keeping your like hygiene and everything like together. Um, because that's like a very big consideration on an adventure like that. And then just like the mental approach, how to basically overcome like tough moments and like keep a, a head that like enables you to keep moving forward, which I think that's been the most like rewarding process to go through, really understanding like what controls your emotions and then like how to to basically deal with those emotions. You never like can rule them or conquer them. Like you're always going to have these bad moments, but it's, it's kind of like your ability to deal with them, which I think like that's been the biggest learning process. And then as far as like, like training and preparation, you know, there's always things you can do to, to get your body ready, which has also been like, it's a, it's a very different uh, process than you would go through for, getting ready for like a world tour stage race um so that's a nice nice process to go through too yeah last year you wore whoop during the alt tour and i was looking over the data as it came in you did not sleep very much actually and in the video it's not a single it's not a single digit recovery <laughs> <laughs> in in the in the video that rafa produced from the alt tour which was awesome um at one point you like F you whoop <laughs> for, for yeah. like Just trying to me, tell me how to sleep. Me how destroyed yeah. I am. Yes, and, and like it was hilarious to me, uh, and I think a lot of people that watched it. It's it's because you do have to like completely get uncomfortable, and and at this time, like trying basically to beat the racing Tour de France to do this the old school way, completely self supported. No no one buying you food, no one giving you bottles. You stopped, you filled up your own bottles, you pitched your own tents, slept in ditches, like took showers at campsites, you did it on sandals, like all of these things, and then. In whoop language, you did a 20.8 on the last day. Your dad came in, like gave you this huge motivation to be able to like finish this massive day. I think it was like 14 hours of riding or something to meet the last day to, to finish on the Champs-Élysées. Like just, you know, 20.8 is so insane. Uh, it's just such a big effort. It's 14 hours of your heart rate, like high or whatever it was. And you did this. And then I think the thing that was wild about it for me watching it was that the day after you know, you basically like a proper pro athlete, once you took, you had, you had a basically like almost three weeks of no sleep and this huge amount of strain. And then you take like one night of rest and your heart, your HRV just precipitously went down. You had no sleep, like 30 HRV. And then you automatically almost went back to like 200, uh, after you got like 12 hours of sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bounce back pretty quick. It's interesting because like, I think like for me, the whoop score is like, I mean, I find it the most useful now because I coach my myself and you can always like lie to yourself, right? And I've always said like, if there was a tool that like enabled 
a coach to understand like how you feel when you wake up, like that would be the most valuable thing, right? Like forget power meters, forget heart rate monitors, like that's the thing. So being honest enough to yourself to understand what that feeling is. So yeah, that, that whoop score kind of cuts through the bullshit, really, you know, like you kind of wake up and like, you're like, yeah, I feel like about 7% recovered, you know, like that's definitely right. So on a normal day, you'd be like, yeah, I'm not going to step on that bike today and I can feel why. But in that, that situation, yeah, you just kind of have to, to get on with it. But that like recovery, that was interesting because that's kind of how I felt, um, like during the ultra, I was able to put together all the different things I learned to like really look after myself as best I could, you know, while taking under something that's like incredibly, um, difficult, but yeah, like the, the recovery was a lot quicker than, than I thought, but that was, it was like in line with how I felt. The thing that took the longest was my uh, feet. Like I couldn't put them in bike shoes for a really long time. <laughs> so um, that, that took yeah. a little longer. Yeah, I think it, it matches with like what we what we think about. Like you're, you were probably so ecstatic and, and stoked. You know, your central nervous system was probably booming and you were like ecstatic to have accomplished this goal. And like then you got all this sleep and you're this insane athlete. So you naturally like as soon as you get that, your body just goes through the roof. It's just like you, you fed it everything that it needed. Stoke, fuel, sleep. It just went right back as you would expect. Like we see this all the time, you know, big athletes do triathlons or something and they just, you know, as they build and then they peak and then after the triathlon or the, the Ironman or whatever, they just they just disintegrate great but then the next day or day after it's just boom right back up and that's what's really cool about you is that your your nervous system is very responsive in your data set which is um which is exactly what we would expect from kind of an outlier like yourself yeah i always find like in uh those especially long races like your body goes downhill for three to four days and each day is progressively worse until you hit like this moment when you're like oh my god how am i going to manage you know, and then basically you get past this trough and you can feel your body like adapting. It's like it finally re- relinquishes and it's like, okay, this is what we're doing. Like we're going to have to get ready for it. And so like everything starts to get easier, you know, I mean, and then you're never getting back up to where you started, but like it gets to a point when your body's like, all right, I'm just going to accept that we're going to take like, 12 hours of abuse every day and then we're only going to sleep for four hours and it, it's pretty remarkable when you can like i guess like quantify that data like you said like you, you give it one day off and your body's like oh wow <laughs> i thought we were only going to sleep four hours and then we we're going to get our ass kicked at like four o'clock in the morning again so yeah it's, it's definitely cool to see that like that data so yeah so talking about the altar talking about the tour de france it's going on right now actually when we're having this conversation there's a stage going on like the first big mountain stage you've raced at the vuelta which is the tour of spain for anyone that doesn't know it's also a three-week grand tour you've raced at the giro the tour of italy which is also a three-week grand tour where i think you famously said i i'm never doing this again and i have something else in mind or something of that nature where you then went to do the all tour when someone asks you if you've raced the tour de france what what do you respond with because you've you've actually done like you you have done the tour de france in a different a totally different way and a way more impactful way i'll add (laughs) yeah no i still say no (laughs) um because i know like it's such a different it's such a different beast to take on the race. I think a lot of my teammates who were racing that, they were like, What the hell? Like how could you do that? It's insane. 
but I look at the race like I, I, when I turn the TV on in the morning and watch what these guys do. I'm like, how could you do that? It's insane, you know. Like the the challenge I did is much more in line with like my abilities and like my mindset, right? Like I find that stuff significantly easier than the stress of like 180 guys all trying to get into one corner and then like race full gas for 30 minutes up a climb and then you know like it did that stuff i find that difficult <laughs> you know so as much as i would love to like be able to it's always on the plane the person who sits next to you and they're like what do you do for a living and then the second you say you're a bike rider they're like have you raced the tour and the second you say no like all credibilities out the window. I don't think that's I don't think that's true for you. Yeah, anyway, I would love to just be able to say yes and then like retain the credibility. But the second like you say no, they're like they assume you're just like their friend that rides, you know? And they're like, So how do you really make a living? <laughs> um but yeah, I still say no. Let me let me ask this question. Since we were talking about this kind of this difference, if if you think about like guys that you've raced with and been teammates with for a while, like a Michael Woods or like a, a Rigoberto Uran or or some of these guys, like they, I don't think that they could do what you do. And but also, I think hearing you, you just said like I don't think I would, I, or I don't want to. I think you can, but I don't think you, I don't think you want to. It's like, can you describe just that, just like for a minute? Because I think that there is, I think for people listening, they're going to think, but you did, you, you have raced the Giro, you have raced the Vuelta, you have won Tour of Utah and Gila and these big races, but like now also you're watching the tournament. Yeah. Like, I'd never, I'd never want to do that. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Like, um, I still enjoy getting into road races every now and then now, um, and like the intensity of it, but I think I only enjoy it because I know I'm not going to have to do it again next week. <laughs> so. I think like the the pressure and stress of um, and the, and the mindset you need to perform in like a world tour race it requires like all of you right um, and there's no not much space for anything outside of that which I I don't have the capacity to switch into that mode really anymore I don't know I feel like now when I get in the race I'm mean, gonna get into like a ridiculous situation where you're kind of risking your life to get into this corner, like in the first 20 wheels. I kind of see it for what it is. <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, this is like, this is like a second grade race in Spain, but like no one's heard of. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, I can't, I can't, I can't justify the risk. Um, and also, like, in the way I approach uh, training now, um, it's very different than like, I think you get ready for a very specific style of effort when you're training and preparing for a world tour race. And in order to get ready for that effort, like the, the training has to be very, very structured. The recovery has to be dialed in. Like there's a lot of things that you need to pay attention to. Um, whereas I prefer to just go out and ride for six or seven hours and see where I get to, um, which like serves me well for, for a lot of the stuff I do now um, and it enables me to like jump from, from like discipline to discipline pretty easy. I'm like, you know, 85% prepared for everything. Um, but, you know, to, to perform and to enjoy like top level racing, you need to be a hundred percent on your game. There's definitely some athletes who I know couldn't just jump on a bike with all their stuff and like ride around France and camp and manage like that. I think like, there's certain athletes who just 
couldn't <laughs> couldn't function. But I think if someone like really wanted to, um, I think a lot of the like world tour guys could jump in and do that. But I just don't think there's like a a drive, right? I think for ultra cycling in general, like your ability gets you the least far. Um, it's like it's almost fifty fifty. You know, fifty percent legs and then fifty percent experience and you know preparation. So, yeah, that, I think that's what I enjoy about it. Like the the pieces of the puzzle, uh, there's so many things going on. You know, if you're trying to think like the next town where you're like, okay, I got to get water here, and then it's going to be starting to get dark, so I need to like fish that light out, and then uh, maybe I'm going to get like 30 k's down the road, and then I'll get some food here, and then maybe I can, you know, it's like you're constantly like putting together different pieces of the puzzle, and then there's always something going wrong, you know, because you're like, all right, I could just make that campsite before dark, and then like straight away you get a flat tire, right? And then it's like, you know, in your head, you're like, okay, now I'm riding in the dark, and like that's a, a whole thing to get your head around, and like there's a lot of different things that can bring you undone. It's not like in a, in a road race, it's very simple, right? Like it's, you're like, okay, I need to hang on to this group here. And then like, I feel good so I can attack here or I'm trying to get my teammate into this corner. It's just like basic wheel to wheel racing, which is the one thing I do still enjoy about it. You know, you get in there and life's very simple. We're just racing a bunch of, <laughs> racing a bunch of guys to a finish line. But yeah, I think that's what also makes it very different. You, you, in one of the quotes that uh, I have plucked here is like something along the lines of like, "I chase things that want me to keep me on my bike all day," and it sounds like that's what you're saying. Like you, you're you're chasing the stoke like all the time. It's it's that there is another thing that's coming up. There's another adventure, and so you know, with that, it's I think my final one of my final questions to you is just kind of like, "What is it that's going to be next?" Because you've done some really awesome things, and I know that you're a very creative guy, and I have this feeling that these aren't just like rash decisions that you're saying, I'm going to go ride the Tour de France. Or I'm going to go do this. So is there something that's really kind of like, you know, it's an itch that you're just, you're dying to scratch that's coming up that you're excited about that you could talk about? Man, there's a whole bucket list now. Like I, I probably have like a list of 10 different like events that I would like to do uh, in different parts of the world. I think now I'm very interested in like in competing in places that aren't traditional cycling nations. Um, I find it really interesting to go and, and see what a different cycling culture is about and then be able to compete against the, the people there on, on their own terrain. Like that's something I, I want to continue to do more of. And then like the, the one thing I really have been wanting to do for a few years now is the tour divide, like the, the route that goes from uh, Canada down to, to Mexico following the, the Rockies. Like that's kind of something that like really gets me excited. I would really love to do the like round the world route and do it in a way like there, are, there is a record. And um, I think to do that record, it would be like, I don't know, probably too close to the road racing mindset. So I'm done. I'm trying to find a way in which I could do that without just eat, sleep, ride and be able to experience the whole thing. So yeah, that's kind of my challenge at the moment is to work out how to make that route like really exciting for myself because my general rule is that if it's not – like I, I never do something for the sake of it um, or just for the outcome. It's got to be something that's like genuinely motivating. So, 
yeah, I, I, I think finding a way to make that like really motivating for myself is my challenge at the moment and then hopefully take that on in the next year or two. I still love racing. I'm always trying to jump into any race that's on around lots of local racing or, you know, like doing this lifetime series is, is really fun. So I think from a racing perspective, I still want to go back to Cape Epic and have like a proper go at that race um, because, you know, that's a, it's a special race and like this is your um, other your other um, shoulder the guy jumping on your other shoulder is now yeah, talking exactly. again he's back <laughs> he's exactly. back he, he showed yeah. up with a cape he flew That's in and he was like lachlan <laughs> don't try to run from me yeah. i'm he's here like, he's, he's like don't forget you've still got to get these things done there's a lot of things left undone all right, so like I got a couple of quick questions. We did we did some studying uh, of the team's data over the last couple of uh, I'll say years because we've been working with EF for a couple of years. So I wanted to just quickly ask if I were to pose you a question of some riders that maybe like who on the team, uh, the EF team, takes the the most naps? Is, would it be Alberto Betiol, Rigoberto Oran, Jonathan Caicedo, or would it be Alex House? If you could pick what rider takes the most naps in the team. Is it Housey? <laughs> I, I think I, I think I think it would have been Alex before he had uh Dahlia, but I'm still gonna go with Alex. Is it Alex? <laughs> yes. He has the most hours uh napped. Yes, fifty two hours and forty eight minutes for the uh for the most total hours oh, napped throughout man. the year. What a savage. If if you had to guess, who do you think has the lowest resting heart rate on the team? I know this is kind of a weird one because this isn't one that you'd normally think, but maybe you have some spidey sense around you. Again, we'll use we'll use the same guys. We'll use like Rigo, maybe Chavez, Caicedo, Housey, yourself, Betial. Who do you think has the lowest uh, resting heart rate on the team? Maybe Rigo. It's got to be Rigo, right? He's pretty relaxed. He's incredibly fit. <laughs> he is. It's Betiol, man. And it's 28 beats per minute. Betiol, actually. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, okay. I could see that. Betiol is an absolute beast. <laughs> absolute beast. <laughs> 20, 28. 28. Damn, that's low. I know. I know. It's like, dude, we have to shake him. I mean, that's like every couple seconds you get a heartbeat in there for crying in the night. Oh, my gosh. He's an incredible athlete. Yeah, he really is. Cycling is easy for that guy. Yeah, no, he, he is. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's great. Okay, and then I have my last question. I'll give you a hint if you need it. So go with this. Who do you think trains uh, and has like the highest strains on the team? Okay, wait. So the highest strains? Yeah, like constantly throughout the whole year. Like who trains the hardest on the team? It's one of the riders from South America or the Southern Hemisphere, I'll say. Oh, hi, is it Esteban? No, Guerrero. Guerrero had like a basically oh. year round strain is 18.6 for the year. Like basically he just always, wow. always hustling Guerrero. <laughs> well, from his whoop data anyway. So yeah, maybe he's okay. not trained the most, but he's out there living the dream, doing whatever he's doing, like working, working, <laughs> doing things. Pushing the most. His body's working the hardest. I've seen have some pretty intense phone calls that I think would definitely bump in the score up for sure. I think there's a lot of strain that's happening outside of the bike with that guy. Yeah, and you you have the highest strain on the team of 20.8 that day where you rode the last day of the tour, man. That was crazy as hell. I, I wanted to ask one last question that I didn't get in because I think it will tap well. I wanted to just ask around what you did do and the money that you raised for the alt tour. I wanted to ask if when you got to give those bikes to that community and what that experience was like? 
Yeah, that was incredible um, to like close the circle there in in Colombia um, and see where that money was going, um, and just in very very simple terms, like see like the the smile on, on kids' faces when they they get given a bike like that. I think it was humbling in a lot of ways because you you saw the amount of work that World Bicycle Relief are doing and how much it requires from people to to make something like that happen and yeah i think like kind of cemented the fact that it's just a very small piece of that puzzle but yeah it's amazing i mean like bikes have been the most incredible thing in my life so then to be able to share that with with other people um just through the simple act of giving bikes is like no it's the best so yeah it's incredibly rewarding for sure yeah, because like for some of these people, it's going to be, you know, you give these bikes, they're going to, you know, have mobility, like the ability to get food and water and like that, you know, some of these other countries, not all of them, but some of them really kind of give people a, a different lease on life to be able to to move. And that same thing that you felt when you were like 13, that freedom, I think it, you know, by doing that big ride, you've, you've essentially like given them that same thing that you love that, you know, gave you so much, it's going to give them so much. I think it's a uh, I think it'd be really cool to be able to, to have that experience. So uh, glad to hear that it was it was that for you. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. Like the the bikes that they're giving there really do like help transform the communities. Um, yeah, I guess just to witness that it's, it's it's incredibly fulfilling. I can say it's been really great to be able to get to know you, to be able to like talk about all this amazing, truly like you know inspiring work that you've done. I think, you know, I speak for everybody. We're grateful to have you on and to have you as, a, as an ambassador to the product. And thank you so much for taking the time. No, thanks, man. I've enjoyed it. Good to chat. Thank you to Lachlan Morton for coming on the Whoop podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of the Whoop podcast, please leave us a rating or a review. You can check us out on social at Whoop, at Will Ahmed. You can email the Whoop podcast, podcast at whoop.com. Call our new listener line and leave a question or comment. 508-443-4952. That's 508-443-4952. A reminder, new members can use the code WILL, W-I-L-L, to get a $60 credit on Whoop accessories when you get a new Whoop membership. Okay, that's all we got for you this week, folks. We'll be back next week. Stay healthy, stay in the green.